Well, as we have been announcing for the last couple weeks, um, we are celebrating what has become to be known the Sanctity of Life Sunday a little bit later than, just one week later than all the other churches in our community. I just want to thank the volunteers who got the carnations for us. These are, um, if you read in your bulletin, uh, these carnations, these flowers, you are free to take one as um, a symbolic reminder during the week of um, unborn children and the slaughter that is happening in our country. And there's also an opportunity for us to donate to some of our local pro-life groups that are working um, tirelessly and hard to put an end to the slaughter. Uh, and and I'll, I'll hope you forgive me because when, when this was first announced that we were going to do this, uh, I had no intentions of taking a break from our sermon series to discuss this. Um, primarily just because we just got done with the holiday season and we spent a long time doing Advent and I did a New Year's sermon and, and I, we just had taken such a long break. I didn't want something else to get us off of the pastoral epistles and into a new sermon topic. But just as the week was going by, it was just too heavy on my heart. Uh, it, Polly reminded me this morning she got 50 carnations. And that means that if, if every child that has been murdered just since Roe v. Wade was passed, rep, if, if, if one flower represented a million kids, we still don't have enough flowers. You know, people talk a lot about how important it is for Christians to not overreact to the culture and to elevate one sin above the rest. And I'm going to talk more about that at the end of the sermon, but I just want to remind you that I don't know many other sins that our nation is committing that has taken the lives of over 60 million children. This is unique. This is a unique sin. And so I decided, sort of last second, we are going to take a little bit of a break today. Um, from the book of Titus, and we are going to just look at and remind ourselves of the important truths of what the Bible says about human beings, both after and before they're born. But what I want the sermon to primarily focus our time on today is an important reminder. It might seem simplistic, but I promise you it's not. The more important thing we need to see is how do we respond to this? What as a culture, what as a church, more importantly, is the only thing, that the only weapon God has given us to truly try to bring change to what we're seeing around us? And that is what we're going to look at today. And so we're going to bounce around a little bit, but we'll primarily be in the book of Psalms. So you can go ahead and to begin, open your Bible to Psalm chapter 51 if you would like. But what I want to do before we see something is just remind us of something. And and by the way, throughout the New Testament, uh, it was important for the apostles to remind people, to remind their people of truths they already knew. It happens all the time, truths they already know, Uh, and so I I don't want you to think that the reason I'm preaching this is because I think I'm necessarily telling you something you don't know. That's not the goal. Sometimes as Christian churches, we preach truths we already know, and as a matter of fact, we do that because we know that we are prone to forget things. We are prone. You read the book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians begins with Paul telling the Galatians that they've forgotten the gospel. He says, I cannot believe that you have turned to another gospel. The gospel itself is something we can forget. So it is important to be reminded of things. So please, this is not a condescending sermon of covering Christian basics because I think that you are unaware of these things. It's just important for us to be reminded. And so let me just remind you that the Bible is crystal clear from beginning to end that murder is wrong. The Bible is crystal clear, Old Testament, New Testament, beginning to end, that to take the life of another human being is wrong. 
As a matter of fact, one of the first sins that we see take place after the fall of man was murder. Cain killing his brother, and it's in that chapter, Genesis chapter 9, where God actually tells us why murder is such a horrific atrocity, and it's because God reminds us that people are made in his image. When we murder another human being, we are not just attacking that human being, we are attacking the very image of God. We are trying to, in a certain sense, kill God when we do such a thing. It is the image of God in Genesis 9 chapter, or verse 6, that God tells us makes this such a horrific crime. And remember, this was before the giving of the law. This was before Moses received the law that we saw this, this, this sin be punished. So murder was not something that became sinful once the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. Certainly, murder was a sin of the Ten Commandments. And in the Old Testament, it was regularly condemned as a sin. But even before the giving of the law, we see God speak out against killing another human being. And you can read through the New Testament to find that with the coming of the New Covenant, this has not changed. Regularly throughout the New Testament, when the New Testament authors list sins or discuss sins or sort of pack sins together, murder is among them. Taking another person's life is a violent, horrific sin. Now, a couple things need to be qualified, though. Because if, if we leave it at that, if that's all we say, if that's all we describe the, the sin of murder as, we have not actually represented the Bible well. As a matter of fact, we've turned the Bible into a very complicated and uh, unapproachable book, and here's why. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and, he, and one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not kill. But who knows what the punishment for anyone who broke that law was? You'd kill him. Right? So God says, don't kill. What if we do? Then kill him. You should never kill another person. What if someone does kill another person? Kill that person. So we have to understand that it is not merely the image of God that we protect in murder, but it's the innocence of people that also deserves to be protected. So what we see in the Old Testament, in the Levitical law, and we also see this, you can mark down in Romans chapter 13, verses one through four, where even in the New Testament, Paul says the government has the power of the sword. And let me just remind you, the sword was not used as a spanking paddle. Old Testament, New Testament, capital punishment is something God has ordained. And we see also in Levitical law, there were laws for self-defense. There were laws for just wars. So it is misrepresenting the Bible to say, under no circumstances can a person ever take another person's life. That, that's not the, the pro-life position of the Bible. The Bible does not say that it is never, ever, ever permissible for anyone to ever take someone's life. We see God commanding the Israelites to take people's lives as they inherit the promised land. We see God commanding capital punishment in the Old Testament. So what we have to understand as Christians is this, is that if someone has Two qualities, the image of God and legal innocence. According to the Bible, you can do something where you then lose your right to life. But if you haven't done that, if you have the image of God and legal innocence, it is then a wicked thing for your life to be taken. Innocent people who bear God's image should never have their lives taken. That is the biblical understanding and so this becomes the, the, the pressing issue for Christians then as we deal and live within a culture that has legalized, that has sanctioned taking people's lives. The, the question that, and we're going to get to this in the conclusion, this isn't so much the question anymore, but originally the question was this, 
There's a third element that has to be here. Well, well, really, it's part of the image of God. In order to be image of God, you have to actually be a human. You have to be a person. Plants don't have image of God. Animals don't have the image of God. That's why we have different standards when it comes to taking their life. So the question then, as it deals specifically with the unborn, or at least the question used to be, well, are they persons? Right? I've never heard someone try to condemn the unborn on the other end of spectrum, the innocence part. I don't know many people who have ever claimed that children in the womb are committing capital crimes worthy of capital punishment. Um, these babies are not committing crimes. So the first point of attack oftentimes is their personhood. Does the Bible treat unborn people as in fact being people? Or is there some point after our birth that we suddenly inherit the image of God? Now, we could spend a lot of time on this, but let me just give you some of the important proofs texts to look at. Hopefully, you've already opened to Psalm 51, but if you have not, please open to Psalm 51. This is a well-known psalm. This is David's repentant psalm. This is the psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba, and I'll just remind you that part of that whole process of sin included murder. It's a different kind of murder. He didn't, you know, use his hand specifically, but David is certainly credited with killing Bathsheba's husband to cover up his original sin. So the unjust taking of an innocent person's life is wrapped up in what David is confessing and repenting of in Psalm chapter 51. And notice what he says. Let's begin right in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then this is the key verse. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin, the sin that we inherit from Adam. All people are born into sin, but it's really wrong to say you're born into sin. Because what does David say? David doesn't say, I was born into sin. He said, I was conceived into sin. David considered himself sinful from the moment of his very conception, not his birth. And so here's why that's important. You can't be a sinner if you're not a person. You, you can't be a human being worthy of ju God's judgment if you're not a human being. David said from the moment of his conception, God deserved to judge him. David certainly considered himself a person, a human being from the moment of his conception. We see all throughout the Bible, people who are inside their mother's wombs are considered, in fact, people. Turn, stay in the Psalms and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 13. This is really popular, typically, when Christians discuss the sanctity of life and abortion. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Right? So again, the psalmist here is, is as God knits someone together in their mother's womb, that person is a person. That person says me. That was me. That wasn't a thing that eventually became me. It was me. It was, in fact, me. We see uh, in the Levitical law that unborn children had legal protection. That to kill an unborn child actually bore civil punishments. 
So the law certainly recognized their human status. The Psalms certainly recognized their human status. Another thing that you can write down, we won't look, look at, is Luke chapter 1, verse 41. This is when John the Baptist, who is an unborn child in his mother's womb, when, when, when his mom tells Mary that she's pregnant, or that when Mary tells his mother that she's pregnant with Jesus, John the Baptist says, is filled with the Holy Spirit and leapt for joy. Creatures, unhuman, inhuman creatures are not filled with the Holy Spirit and they don't leap for joy. Just a, a bag of protoplasm or a, a bag of cells isn't filled with the Holy Spirit and leaps for joy. John the Baptist, an unborn child, was filled with the Holy Spirit and left with joy. It is consistent revelation throughout the Bible that unborn children are seen as just that, children, human children, capable of emotions, capable of image of God, capable of inheriting Adam's sin, capable of interacting with the Spirit. So we have to understand that children are consistently and always seen as actual human beings, we won't get into the science of it, but I would just encourage you, you can do the scientific study and see that the science supports this. From the moment of your conception, you have your entire DNA already lined out. You, you don't gain any DNA. You don't gain any humanity. You're just in a different form of development. To say that uh, someone in the womb or, 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 can, or if the, at the moment of conception this person is not human is to simply say your humanity is based on the form of development you're, that you're in. And so if we go that far, then we may as well determine 13-year-olds are less human than 80-year-olds because they're not as developed as the 80-year-olds are. So they've lost some humanity, obviously. Now, your location doesn't determine your humanity. Your stage of development doesn't determine your humanity. So while maybe as, as, as a, the moment of his conception, David didn't look the way he looked when he wrote Psalm 51, it doesn't change the biological reality and more important, the revelational reality that he was a son of Adam. In that moment, he was human. And let it just also be said as we continue understanding the, the biblical position that throughout Scripture, killing children is always associated with evil people. And the blessing of children is always associated with God's good revelation. We, we see in Psalms and Proverbs that children are called blessings and gifts from the Lord. We see Jesus interacting with children, loving children. The ch children are never seen as burdens or as curses. As a matter of fact, what we actually see is the exact opposite. Barren women are the ones who feel cursed in Scripture. Barren women are the ones crying out to God for help. Because the biblical picture is not that children are burdens or curses, but they're gifts. They're blessings. Likewise, on the other side, you can go through people who don't view children that way are never among the godly. We see very early on in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, when the Jewish people that they had enslaved were growing too big and too powerful and he was worried about losing control, what he, he did is he tells the, the Hebrew midwives to kill all the firstborn males. Right? Pharaoh was not a godly person. He was not numbered among God's people. And what do we see him doing? Losing control, kill the children. We see this as, as the Jews start inheriting the promised land and they are encountering all of these pagan nations and these, these people outside of God's covenant who don't know the true God and worship the true God. And one of the more famous ones was a people group who had a God called Molech. And the way that Molech desired to be worshipped was through child sacrifice. And so one of the, the people groups that the Jews had to drive out of the promised land was a group of people who actually thought they were pleasing one of their gods by taking their children and sacrificing them on an altar. 
Killing children has always been seen as a pagan practice. It has never been a Christian practice. And lastly, and we're going to tie this back at the very end, one of the more famous instances of this is in the New Testament when Herod, who's kind of a governor, so to speak, to use our language, he'd be like a governor. Herod was governor over the region that Jesus was born in. And he heard that the Jewish Messiah had been born and he panicked. And so what did he command happen? Kill the children. Kill the children. So what we see here is that abortion is not new. This is not an American practice. This is not a new American constitutional right. This is a pagan, wicked practice that's been happening since the fall of man. As a matter of fact, that's why some of the earliest Christians had to deal with it specifically. We read in a document known as the Didache, which is a first century document. It was sort of like a church manual, that, uh, a, a manual that churches would use to know how to structure and run the church. And in it, chapter 2, verse 2, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit sodomy, thou shalt not commit fornication, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not use magic, thou shalt not do witchcraft, thou shalt not procure abortion, nor commit infanticide. From the second century, the epistle of Barnabas, chapter 19, verse 5, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor shalt thou kill it when it is born. They were dealing with this in the first and second century too. It has always been a tool of the devil to get us to kill our offspring. But what we see in scripture is that the righteous, the people of God, consider children blessings, not curses. The righteous, the people of God, do not kill their children both after or before they're born. The righteous, the people of God, understand that they are innocent and made in God's image and therefore their life deserves protection. That is the biblical principle. And so here's what I want us to do just briefly. I, I want to run you through very quickly a list of things that, that the culture at large wants to try to convince you of regarding abortion. There are lots of, of ways that the serpent wants to use to sneak uh, ideas into your head that, that, that sort of soften the sin and make it, maybe make us a little bit more comfortable with it. For example, uh, some people will even say that, you know, it's legal. Right? So... You might have a personal dislike for it, but we really, we shouldn't fight against it. We shouldn't tell people they can't do it. We should, I mean, it's legal. And let me just remind you that nowhere in Scripture has we ever given revelation that all legal principles are always moral and good. The Bible does not say your national, civil, local governments determine morality. As a matter of fact, we see quite the opposite. Turn to Psalm chapter 94. Psalm chapter 94, look at verses 20 and 21. The psalmist here is asking these rhetorical questions. Verse 20, can wicked rulers be allied with you, O God, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. This is a very clear psalm saying that not only is just because something legal make it moral, it's taking it to the other end of the spectrum and saying, no, these are people who take the, the innocent life, they band together against righteous people, they band together against innocent people, and they condemn them to death, and they do so with the law. They take this evil sin of murder, and they legislate it, and they legalize it. 
That, that, that's what he means when he says you frame injustice by statute. They take this injustice and they turn it into legislation. And the psalmist says, can these people be considered on God's side? Absolutely not. So it is our job to speak against a government that would frame injustice by statute, band together against the life of the righteous, and condemn innocence to death. That is what abortion is. And we have a clear mandate to be against that practice, whether it's legal or not. You'll hear people say things like, well, you know, we shouldn't try to make it legal because, one, if, if, or make it illegal, because once we make it illegal, then people are still going to do it. But now they're just going to do it in the back alleys and they're going to do it unsafe and they're going to use coat hangers and they're going to be, you know, we, we, we don't want to push abortions to the back alleys, right? Folks, let me just say something. The back alleys is where murder belongs. That's always where people have been murdering people. It's in the dark and in the back. Can you imagine if we applied this principle to other forms of murder? If your boss, may, listen, people are going to be killed, people are going to murder their boss when their boss rips them off and makes them mad. But now it's just unsafe because then the boss might fight back. Now, so what we should do is we should have a legal sanction where if your boss makes you mad, then we can arrest him, bring him into a nice sanita, you know, sanitary hospital, and we can murder your boss in a safe way. If you're going to murder someone, it should be done in the back alleys. It should be unsafe. People will say things like, well, you know, I understand that we probably, you know, it's probably not the best thing in the world to, to, to kill unborn children, but, you know, uh, they're not going to have great lives, right? The reason the mother's having an abortion is because maybe she's too poor and she can't afford the child, or, you know, maybe the, the dad's gone and, you know, children who grow up in single-parent homes are more likely to commit crimes, or, you know, or, or maybe they just put them into the foster care system, right? Like, it's not good for a child to be born to a woman who doesn't want it or isn't ready for it. And here's the underlying principle there that we have to reject. Being poor does not make someone unworthy of their life. Let's take this principle to its logical conclusion. Listen, the foster care system is terrible. We don't want kids to end up there, so let's kill them before they're born. Why not after they're born? If being in the foster care, if that's literally worse than death, if we would rather kill these children than put them in foster care, then the logic of that is, why don't we just go through all our foster care homes and kill all the children? Isn't that a mercy? Aren't we doing them a favor? Right when I moved here this last summer, I volunteered at RFK camp. And it's so bizarre. They, they treated these foster care kids like their lives were worth living. Like we were supposed to treat them like even though their lot in life is tough, that it's good that they have life. Why don't we just murder those children? Let's just go to all the poor communities in Roswell and kill all the children because God forbid you're born to a poor family. God forbid you get put in the foster care system. Wouldn't it be a mercy? You see the inconsistency. We don't murder foster care kids, but we'll murder them before they become foster care kids. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you deserve death. And by the way, uh, let's also look at the, the logic here. Somebody says, um, you know, they're, we, don't, we don't want them to be poor. Well, what's wrong with being poor? Well, you might not have food and you might get bad health care. Well, what's wrong with not having food and having bad health care? Well, you might get really sick. Well, what's wrong with getting really sick? Well, you might die. So look at what we're doing. We don't want these kids to die, so how should we respond? Make them die. 
Can you imagine getting a cancer diagnosis and going in and the doctor says, listen, things are really bad. This cancer is very aggressive. It's very late in its development. And we're really, really afraid that the cancer is going to take your life. So to avoid that, we're going to put you down. We don't want you to die. We don't want the cancer to take your life. So we're just going to kill you. What sense does that make? But that's the logic here. We don't want these kids to be poor because then they might have bad attention and bad health care and they might get sick and they might die. So just make them die. That is not a justification for abortion. But what you'll almost always hear, these things are sort of a way of the past, but you'll always hear that this should just be a woman's choice, right? This is just not our business. And folks, let me just remind you that that completely begs the question. What I mean by that is that argument is assuming that they're right about unborn children. Because here's the thing. We as Christians, I agree. What a woman does with her body, according to the government, should be completely up to her. If she wants to get a tattoo, I might be against whatever tattoo she wants to get. That's none of my business. If she wants to get her nails done, I might not like the way she get her nails done. But you know what? They're not my nails. That's none of my business. If she wants to get her wisdom teeth out, get her wisdom. What she does with her body is absolutely her business. But what's the problem? When you go to get an abortion, you're not aborting your body. She's not aborting herself. You see, the reason where we don't say that this is a woman's choice is because we're so pro-choice. It's because we care so much about choice. It's because we care so much about women's bodies and the freedom from people forcing them to do things to their bodies that that's why we stand up for 500,000 little women every year whose mothers determine for their bodies what's going to happen. You see, I agree that it's a woman's choice, the woman in the womb who's being murdered. Where's her bodily autonomy? Where's her bodily rights? To say this is the woman's choice, she can do what she wants with her body, is to assume that the child inside her is not its own autonomous individual being. And that's the very heart of the thing that we're disagreeing with. So no, it's not her body, so it's not her choice. It's the infant's body, so it's the infant's choice. Isn't this reproductive freedom? Should the government be legislating our reproductive rights? Folks, abortion has nothing to do with reproduction. Abortion is what happens after you've reproduced. Abortion laws are not going against reproductive freedom. People can still reproduce when and however they want. Abortion laws are what we do after that freedom has been exercised. And so that brings us to another really important thing because we do unfortunately live in a day and age where there are some women who do get pregnant and it wasn't their choice. That's that's the horrible reality around us is that not every pregnancy was the woman's choice. What do we do in those situations when sinful men commit such a heinous crime? Well, the Bible has an answer for that as well. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. If a woman did not choose to get pregnant, it was forced upon her against her will, should she be allowed to kill the baby? Deuteronomy chapter 24, look at verse 16. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. 
So if a man rapes another woman, you know how we should respond? By killing the man, (laughs) not the baby. Why is the baby being punished for the crime of his father? Children are not punished for the crimes of their father. So no, as horrible as that situation is, and I'm not trying to come across as being unsympathetic, we, we need to be sympathetic. We need to help and love and try to rescue these women who are in that position. I'm, I'm not trying to be sympathetic. But we have to understand from the very get-go, I want to be sympathetic not just to mom, but to her child as well. And then here's really where, uh, as Christians specifically, comes the rub. Anytime Christians want to deal with this issue, we are told that Christians should not get involved in politics. Right? We, you can have your own little opinion about abortion and it can stay in your head and it can stay in your heart, but it's not to come out in the public because the Christian church doesn't need to be mingling with politics. I mean, separation of church and state, right? So just let the state do their thing. You can be against abortion inside the church, but don't, don't, don't get all political, right? A lot of people would be really upset with the sermon today. Right? Oh, Redeemer Christian Fellowship, that, that, that's, what is that, a church or is that a political organization lobbying against abortion? Well, we have two responses to that. The first response is this. Christianity has always had political ramifications. It has never, ever, ever been the case in Christian history nor in scriptural revelation that Christianity was intended to be just a religion that we sat on some shelf in our mind and it never influenced or affected or changed the world. From day one, Christianity has had political ramifications. Remember, I, I, I talked about Herod and said we'd come back to that? Who was Herod? He was a Roman political leader. And he found out that the Jewish people who we have occupied have a Jewish religious leader who's been born. So what did Herod do? Ah, that's just religion. That's just the Jewish stuff. No sweat off my back. That's just some religious leader. You know, see, Herod understood the implications of the Messiah better than most Christians do. Herod knew, if this guy really is the Messiah, that has implications for me. So let's kill him. He knew Jesus did not come to send his disciples out in the world and say, all authority in heaven and on earth, except for the authority of the state, has been given to me. All authority outside of the political realm has been given to me. Now, Jesus is Lord of every nation. He's the Lord of the government of that nation. So we have to understand that separation of church and state is biblical. Separation of God and state is not. Christians have always had a prophetic voice into the culture. One author put it this way, why should we start with this axiomatic assumption that the Christian faith, which has had more of a political impact than any other force in the world, is now suddenly apolitical? The message of Christ is about deliverance from sin and death. But do sin and death remain internally located in each individual soul? Or do sin and death ever come out? Do sin and death have cultural forms and expressions? Does sin and death ever shape the public? When people sin in three dimensions and they demand that the throne be established on unrighteousness and they frame iniquity with law and they say that a woman can have her child dismembered in the womb as her constitutional right, does the church, with its message of deliverance from sin and death, have anything to say about all this sin and death? 
church is a message against sin and death. And unfortunately, sin and death exists in the political sphere. So we have an obligation to speak into our political realm. So I simply disagree that Christians should not get mixed up in politics. I disagree with that. There is a way for a Christian church to be too political. That does exist. We can become idolatrous with our politics. So that can happen. But simply saying it's never our obligation to influence the political realm, to speak into the political realm, is simply not historical and more importantly not biblical. And lastly, I just remind you of this. Abortion is not a political issue. Abortion is not a political issue. From the same book, I think he says it better than I ever could. Abortion and sodomy were sins long before they were constitutional rights. If a minister preached against them a thousand years ago, he was preaching against moral failings and he was not being political. He was being public, but he was not being political. When I preach against these things, I am preaching against moral failings, but I'm now also being political. So what changed? It wasn't the Decalogue. It wasn't the history of the church. It wasn't the history of, the pre- of preaching. It wasn't the nature of the gospel, and it wasn't me. Rather, it was the nature of the idol being challenged, and that idol aspires to omnipresence. And so we are told ad nauseum to keep our morality out of politics. It would be more to the point to tell the idol mongers to keep their politics out of our morality. Abortion was a sin that the Christian church was preaching against since the first century. Christians have been preaching against this for 2,000 years. Why is it suddenly now political? That's the politics fault, not ours. So I hope you don't think you came here to hear a political rant today. This is not a political sermon. This is a sermon on the revelation, character, nature of God. This is not political, but here's how I, I want us to conclude. So what do we do about all this? I, I can get up here and complain and gripe and, and talk about logic and consistency. What do we do about all this? Why well, we just got done talking about politics, so legislation, that's, that should be our focus, right? If, if we could just change the laws, if we could just overturn Roe v. Wade, then problem solved, right? Legislation is good. I, for the sake of the judgment that this nation deserves, I do want us to change our politics and our legislation and our policies. We, we do need to have righteous policies, but make no mistake about it, that's not what our hope lies. As a matter of fact, even if we overturned Roe, the decision would just go to the states. Even as a matter of fact, we already have states in our country rebelling against our federal government. I moved here from Colorado. What's Colorado famous for? It used to be the mountains. It's not famous for that anymore. Why? Because a federal drug, a drug that the federal government has said, you may not partake of this, guess what Colorado said? (laughs) Whatever. I remember not long ago, our president, President Trump, was in all of this hot water because of immigration principles and policies that he was enforcing. So what did California do about it? Sanctuary cities, right? The federal government says to cross the border in this way is illegal. And California said, whatever. So why are we putting all our hope in Roe v. Wade? Why are we putting all our hope in the Supreme Court? Why don't the states just say, whatever? 
The problem is because the states want it. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you to look in to some of the strongest anti-abortion legislation. For example, it's happening right now in Oklahoma. You want to know the groups and organizations that are typically turning down the strongest legislation being presented? It's pro-life groups, pro-life governors. The problem is not Roe v. Wade. That is a problem, but that's not our problem. Our country wants abortion. That's the problem. So, okay, so if it's not legislation, then what we need to do is we need to, to learn the logic and the science, right? We need to, to memorize all these answers I gave you. We need to be able to prove to people scientifically, if we can just prove to them that these unborn babies, if we can just prove that they really are human beings, they're not just a clump of cells, if we could prove they were truly human beings, then people would change their minds, right? Folks, you realize we have people running for president right now that allow you to abort your child after it's been born. The governor of Virginia tried to propose that. So let me ask you this. Does the governor of Virginia, who is on record as saying after the child is born, he will be kept comfortable and then a conversation will ensue between the woman and her doctor what to do with it. Does that governor need to be convinced scientifically that that baby is a human being? They know They know this. They, they don't need to understand the logic of, well, you know, at what point do you draw the line? Why, if, if it's a heartbeat, why not before? Why not? There's a lot of logical inconsistencies and scientific inconsistencies, but here's the problem. They know this. They know it. We've already won those debates. As a matter of fact, let me, let me read something to you. It's a bit lengthy, but I, I promise it's worth our time. This was published in a magazine, I think, almost a decade ago. And this is already where the culture was starting to move. Are you ready for this? This is amazing. This is Mary J. Williams in Salon Magazine. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we end up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet, a fetus can be a human life and yet not have the same rights of the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss, not the fetus. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. When we on the pro-choice side get cagey around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. For example, I have friends who have referred to their abortion in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells, and then a few years later were exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly describe in terms of this baby or this kid. I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancies was different, but that it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same? Fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. When we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortion versus second trimester versus late term. Dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when that fetus suddenly becomes a person. 
This is why I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. And this is not some obscure extremist. Like I said, you look at anyone running for president right now, this is where they're at. No one's calling it a clump of cells anymore. We've won that debate. We've won the science. We've won the logic. And yet it hasn't been sufficient. The legislation won't work. The debate won't work. So what does work? What are we left with? This is where I said you might be tempted to think this is overly simplistic, but I promise you it's not. The weapon that God has given us is the gospel. Abortion is a heart issue. Legislation doesn't change hearts. Scientific experiments don't change hearts. If we want to see abortion end in this land, we need people to stop loving abortion. And the only thing with the power to take someone like what we just read and change and transform their hearts is the gospel being wielded by the power of the Spirit through the people of God. That is the only thing. And, and this is also why we need to understand, I go back to that point of why would you take a whole Sunday to single this sin out? Well, number one, because the culture has. This isn't our choice, it's their choice. But number two, I want you to understand that this is one sin among a unique group of sins. This is unique. And here's why I say that. Most of the time when we sin, we're rebelling against the prescriptive law of God, but we're not rebelling against God's law of creation. We're not rebelling against God's, God, the way God created the world, what we call natural law. We're only rebelling against God's prescriptive law. So lying is sinful, right? Liars, liars deserve the same kind of justice that a, people who have abortions do and commit abortions. Lying is sinful. But when we lie, all we're doing is we're telling God, you have no authority over me. But what our culture is engaged in right now is we have gone so far in our rebellion against God, we are no longer rebelling against his right to have authority over us. We're now rebelling against his right to even be our creator. This is a unique sin because it's not just rebelling against the law of God, it's rebelling against natural law. And that's what the entire sexual revolution needs to be seen as. These are all things where we're no longer telling God, you have no right to boss me around. We're telling God, you're not my creator. So God designed when, two, when a man and a woman come together, the fruit of that labor to be a child, and we say, no, no, I'm going to be able to come together without those creational consequences. God says when two people come together, this should happen, and we're just going to kill it and say it never happened. It's intimacy without consequences. God is not allowed to tell me how the human body works. Same thing with homosexuality. That's not just a law against God's prescriptive law telling us who we should love. God has designed men and women to fit together. There's a biological reality to that. Men love women, men desire women, and vice versa. So what have we said? No, God, you don't get to tell me who my body belongs to. It goes against all biological creational realities. And it's, and it's transgressed even further into what we now call transgenderism. Which is this concept, this idea that I can self-define my own gender. So God created me man, I'll be a woman. 
God created me a woman? No, I get to be a man. You see, we get to decide who we love. We get to decide how we love them. We get to decide who we are. We are now rebelling. These sins, the sexual revolution, is rebelling not just against God's law. It's rebelling against the created order. It is, it is rebelling against nature. God does not get to create me. I create myself. God does not get to biologically design the consequences of sex. We will make our own consequences. God does not get to biologically design who I'm supposed to be with. I will decide. We are rebelling against creation itself. You see, this, these sins are perverted to an additional level. It's more so than just saying, uh, you shouldn't steal that candy bar, but I'm hungry and I've got no money. We're saying God is not my maker and he has no right to tell me whether I'm a man or a woman. And we need to understand that rebellion of this nature will not be resolved through legislation. Rebellion of this nature will never be resolved by scientific experiments and debate. We should do those things. But our only hope is regeneration. We need people who say, God is not my maker, he is not my authority, to say, God is my maker. He is my authority. And the, the Supreme Court cannot do that. Our Facebook debates cannot do that. But the gospel of God and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit can change us from the inside out. <laughs> 